Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Probiotic use in premature neonates continues to be a controversial practice, even with a growing literature base that supports their use for the prevention of necrotizing enterocolitis, reduced rates of sepsis, and decreased mortality. While premature infants have the most to gain in prevention of these high morbidity diseases, they also have the most to lose if probiotic therapy were to go wrong. Let's listen in as one of Mayo Clinic's outstanding pediatric pharmacists, Dr. Brandy Smith, reviews literature supporting probiotic use while also examining lingering questions surrounding this therapy in premature infants. So objectives today, I have goals and objectives. First of all, goals are not to have any of you fall asleep because that happened to me last night while I was trying to practice. And two, to teach you a little bit more about the neonatal world. Objectives for today are to become familiar with what neonates are because a fair number of us just don't practice in the world of neonates. I want to teach you a little bit about what necrotizing enterocolitis is, or NEC is what I'll probably call it from here on out, and then late onset sepsis. I'm going to discuss how probiotics may prevent necrotizing enterocolitis and late onset sepsis, as well as review literature talking about the use of probiotics in neonates, and I'm going to follow it up with some discussions on some of the lingering questions about still using probiotics in neonates. As I mentioned, this is fairly controversial. Um, we ebb and flow with how we feel towards using, so I'm going to see if I can get you guys to feel that same ebb and flow, okay? <clears throat> All right. Well, the topic really can't get anywhere until you know what a neonate is. And so a neonate, by definition, is an infant less than 30 days of age. They can be further classified as term or preterm based upon when they were born. So a full pregnancy is 40 weeks of gestation. Okay, so at 37 weeks, that's our defined cutoff between whether or not you are a preterm neonate or you are a term neonate. So this cutoff is happening roughly within the eighth month of pregnancy. That's where we delineate between whether an infant is term or preterm. The ability to uh, classify preterm actually steps down further then based on age and weight. So by age, an extremely preterm infant is an infant born less than 28 weeks gestation. To correlate that to months, that's roughly mid-sixth month of the pregnancy. You are a preterm infant if you are born between 28 and just before 34 weeks gestation, so catching the tail end of the sixth month and into the seventh month of pregnancy. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you are a late preterm infant if you are born between 34 weeks and up to 37 weeks gestation, so catching now on this point the tail end of the seventh month heading into the eighth month of pregnancy. Okay? We can also classify by weight. And we start with the extremely low birth weight infants. These are our infants born less than 1,000 grams. And to put that into some sort of ideas we think about, that's about two pounds. So those are our extremely low birth weight babies. Very low birth weight babies are babies born under 1,500 grams, roughly three, three and a half-ish pounds. And then low birth weight babies then are babies born less than 2,500 grams, or about five and a half grams, pounds, five and a half pounds. Okay, the reason I bring this up is because 
there's, there's various risks associated with how small you are. As you can probably imagine, the smaller you are, the less capable you are of being able to just generally protect yourself. So the more premature an infant, the higher risk they have for many things, and they're obviously going to have a fairly long hospital stay. So one of those biggest risks is actually just infection. So in neonates, the risk of infection is actually inversely proportional to their gestational age and birth weight. So the smaller they are, the bigger the risk. Some of that comes from just a general innate immunosuppression. So in term infants who are born full pregnancy, doing perfectly well, they are nursing, breastfeeding, taking breast milk through mouth, whatever that may be, they are collecting passive antibodies through their mom, okay? So they're getting it from their breast milk in addition to the fact that they spent their last third trimester of pregnancy collecting it through placental transfer, right? So when they're born, they have passive immunization to kind of protect them until they can start generating their own. It tends to last about two months or so before theirs starts turning over and kicking in their own. Now this innate immunosuppression, as you can imagine, gets worse the more premature you are, right? So we talk again about babies born before the third trimester. They don't have that ability to absorb any of that passive antibodies or passive immunoglobulins coming through the placenta because they're just absent and they're not there. In addition, babies who are then born premature may have a number of reasons why they have to be temporarily made NPO or they're not able to tolerate anything going through the gut. In doing that, we are then unable to provide maternal breast milk, which is also another way to pass that passive immunization onto them. So they take additional hits above and beyond just being premature and part of that innate immunosuppression. In addition, when you've got babies being born two to two and a half months premature, you've got a very long hospital stay, right, before you're finally out the door. So with that prolonged hospital day stay, you're likely to see invasive lines, you know, tubes, all sorts of things that are in there, that's an infection risk. In addition to that, repeated antibiotic exposure because of ruling out infections, now we've got additional things going on, right? So it just, the risks just continue to pile on. So two infections really stand out in the neonatal world, and it's just because these are the ones that have the highest morbidity and mortality in these patients. And that's the direction I'm going to take you. And I'm going to start with talking about late-onset sepsis. So in the world of neonates, we have sepsis that can occur early or late. So early-onset sepsis is the kind of sepsis that occurs generally within the first three days of life. And as you might imagine, it's probably tied to the bacteria that are coming down the vaginal tract during birth and delivery. And this is different from late-onset sepsis, which usually doesn't kick in until after day of life three, sometimes up to day of life seven. In this case, those bacteria are likely hospital-acquired, and you're seeing a more pathogenic infection. <clears throat> Excuse me. Most commonly, those bacteria are going to include E. coli, coag-negative staph, and um, MRSA, if we happen to be in a unit that's got a high rate of MRSA. Now, interestingly, in the neonatal world, we have what we call culture-negative sepsis here. And it, although a baby may look septic and is acting septic, we may not be able to culture a bacteria that actually shows a sepsis. When you think about it, and you've got a micropremie or an ELBW, so a baby less than 1,000 grams, and you're trying to pull blood for sampling, you really don't have much blood you can take, right? Any sort of a sample could be 10% of their entire blood volume. So you're limited in what you can draw. So if you happen to have a sepsis that is a low colony count, 
or it hasn't grown to a fulminant sepsis yet, or it could just be that the sample you got just didn't have enough bacteria in it. And there's a number of reasons why we can have a culture-negative sepsis in this patient population. We'll treat them as sepsis anyway because they look sick and they need antibiotics. We just don't necessarily know the organism we're treating. Now, presentation for these patients can range, actually, from fairly mild symptoms all the way up to fulminant shock. And part of that is just the baby's ability to mount a response, to be able to show you anything. Sometimes it's, it, all they can show you is bradycardia, and they obviously can't tell you that they're feeling sick, so maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe the best they can do is start having apneic events. Suddenly something, they're, they're not breathing as well, the ventilator isn't working like it's supposed to. That may be all they can show you. Or they can go into fulminant hypotension and start having kidney injury and liver injury and whatever else, and now we're into a fulminant sepsis shock, right? So we don't always know what we're doing, but we do know that it's nasty, and it, the morbidity and the mortality rates are fairly high. So with that in mind, I'm going to transfer you over to necrotizing enterocolitis. So necrotizing enterocolitis, neck as we know it, is an ischemic necrosis of the intestinal mucosa. It's accompanied by inflammation, colonization of generally pathogenic bacteria, and it's typically occurring in the terminal ileum and the proximal colon. In these infants who are so susceptible to infections, about a third of them will end up with a bowel perforation. As a result, it is primarily a disease of the preterm infant and is more common in the very low birth weight and the extremely low birth weight infants. Timing of onset actually seems to be inversely proportional to their gestational age, meaning that the the more grown-up preterms seem to get it a little earlier than the very, very, very little preterms where it seems to set in later. Why that is, I, there's probably a number of speculated reasons, but it seems to kind of ebb and flow that way as well. So a little bit more about necrotizing enterocolitis because this is such a nasty disease in the neonates. The pathogenesis is really threefold. We start with intestinal immaturity. So when you think about neonatal development, organ maturation, all those sort of things, they're meant to happen in utero, right? The, the goal is to do this while mom is still pregnant with baby, not outside. So if baby is coming outside and exposed to an environment that their, their body is not yet ready for, we subject them to a lot of risk, right? Infection being one of those. So intestinal immaturity. These babies' guts are not ready to be baby guts yet. So epithelial cells within our GI tract, that's meant to form our tight junctions. Right? So we're supposed to lock everything into the GI tract, not let things get through. In premature guts, they don't work that way. They have leaky guts. Those junctions are not tight. So things that are in the GI tract can actually seep through, which is why neck can sometimes go right with late onset sepsis, because you can suck those bacteria through your gut into your blood and seed a sepsis that way. In addition, it, does, it takes almost nothing to cause an intestinal inflammation in these guys because they are so... Their responses are so hyper-exaggerated because they are not, their, their pathways are not well, well constructed yet in terms of how to respond to a stimuli. They're just not prepared to do that. So intestinal inflammation in addition to intestinal immaturity is now just a big leaky gut waiting for something bad to happen. When you couple that with pathogenic colonization or colonizing of bacteria coming from the hospital, you now have a perfect setup for a very bad disease. So neck is staged based on its severity. Stage one is where we start talking about suspected, su su suspected neck. Whew, it's hard, hard. At this point, the baby is just starting to look ill. 
ish. Something is just not right. Things just, the baby is not well. But radiographic signs are still going to be normal at this stage. When you move into stage two, you are now in confirmed neck. So you've got baby not looking well, but at this point you may also start seeing metabolic derangements. You're probably going to start seeing some thrombocytopedia because there's probably some bleeding in the gut that is happening at this point. Bowel sounds are usually absent by this point. Abdomen is taut, dusky. It's very, very firm, and they do not like being touched. Um, imaging at this point will show some intestinal dilation, probably some ileus, and you may see a pneumatosis. And that's actually a hallmark sign of necrotizing enterocolitis. And it's bubbles of gas sitting within the bowel wall. And that's coming from the pathogenic bacteria releasing all their gas in the bowel wall. Now that's important because when you move into stage three neck, this is the part where our bowel perforates. So all those bubbly gas lucencies that we had sitting in the bowel wall now expand so much that it finally just perforates. So at this point, as you can imagine, we may start seeing sepsis. We may start seeing signs of shock in addition to that. If you're looking at imaging, you may start to see a pneumoperitoneum. And what that means is all the air that was sitting inside that bowel has now perforated out into your abdomen. And so it's free air floating just about everywhere. It can start to even backtrack into the portal venous system and work its way into the liver if, if it's able to go for long enough. So it can progress quickly and it can be, it can be lethal. All right, so now that we're all feeling good about all the bad things that can happen to little babies, let me flip you over and talk about the ways that our GI tract is meant to not let these things happen, okay? So our GI tract has ways that it's meant to protect us. There are various layers within our GI tract that are meant to do things so that those bad things don't happen. And the first line of defense for us is the mucus layer. It has mucus mucin proteins that form gel-like barriers that prevent pathogenic bacteria from actually ever coming into contact with the epithelial cells. Unfortunately, our poor premature babies who already have a lot going against them are deficient in the mRNA that they need to code for those mucin proteins. That's generally not thought to occur until about 27 or 28 weeks gestation. So as you can imagine, babies born before that just took one more hit, right? All right, so once we get past the secretory barrier, we move into the epithelial barrier. So these are our epithelial cells. These are our tight junctions. They're sitting below the mucus layer. Their job is to restrict what's passing through the GI tract. Now, they're not a brick wall. Obviously, things are meant to be selectively permeable. That's how you and I get our nutrients and the food that we need coming through the GI tract. However, the permeability increases with decreased gestational age. And as we talked about, that then is a setup for allowing a translocation of bacteria that normally would stay within the GI tract. And unfortunately for these premature neonates who have been in the hospital, it's pathogenic hospital colonized bacteria. The microbiological layer is our flora layer. So normal GI tracts are colonized with a very diverse microflora. And those colonized strains are always fluidly changing. It varies depending upon what you eat. It may vary depending upon medications you take that could affect the pH of your gut, antibiotics, can cause changes in your flora. But for you and I, for healthy individuals, we can repopulate ourselves. In premature neonates, they colonize with pathogenic and they can't repopulate themselves because the pathogenic bacteria sort of take over. 
So medications that we're using in the NICU, antibiotics, this prolonged MPO status, all these things alter the colonization for them. It, re it results in fewer species being in their GI tract. There's, a, there's less diversity to allow kind of a synergistic relationship between the probiotics and the flora sitting, not probiotics, the flora sitting in there. Um, and predominantly is reflecting an Enterobacteriaceae sort of subgroup in there. So pathogenic bacteria for sure. Beyond the microbiological layer is the immunological layer. And this one always gets a little hazier for me because there's a lot of immunological stuff that is just maybe we don't even all thoroughly understand. But the epithelial cells have little microbial sensors in them that are in, their job is to pick up on any sort of stimulus from those microbes to release uh, the inflammatory cascades. Normally, epithelial cells, when they recognize something foreign and to them that poses a threat, will trigger off the interleukin 6, 8, and TNF-alpha pathways to start the inflammatory process to say something is not right here. We've got to contain, contain and collect, contain and collect. Well, premature infants have one of these receptors called toll-like receptors 4. In utero, so when they're still growing, that receptor is meant to be used as a growth regulator for the GI tract. Its sole job was to try to help the GI tract figure itself out and grow for when it was finally out here in the environment. So as you can imagine, this receptor, who is now out in this hospital environment, receiving stimulation from some sort of a microbe, it doesn't know what to do. And so we get an over-exaggerated inflammatory response, and it triggers just this whole blow-up of just cascading inflammation and whatever else that goes on. So now that we know what's going on, how can we prevent neck and late onset sepsis? Well, if you can find one solid answer, you guys would be set for life. But there doesn't seem to be one solid answer. There does seem to be a number of ways we can work to try to lessen the risk, however. Being judicious about our antibiotics and being good stewards of what we're using is always, always first and forefront on our mind. And that's where pharmacists come in. That's what we do. That's, that's, our, that's our go. Getting lines and devices out as soon as possible to try to avoid, you know, seeding any sort of an infection. Trying to provide breast milk over formula as often as we can. That, that's more beneficial. That's what the babies need. That's what we try to do if we can get it. Early enteral feedings. If we can start feedings early, even something as small as, as what's called trophic feedings, where you're basically just trickling little amounts of milk into the belly, that will help stimulate the, pro the proper, proper GI flora. In addition to helping to mature the gut, it sends off signaling pathways that tells the gut, something's coming in here, it's, it's time for us to grow up and do what we're supposed to do. For those babies that may not be able to take good oral feedings or are NPO and can't take feedings at all, we can do oral cares, and that's just swabbing inside the cheeks and the mouth with some breast milk. Actually, it will do the same thing and send off sensors down into the GI tract telling them, start populating, we're ready, we're, we're about ready to bring you what you need and start maturing so that you can function when you get there. But that's obviously not what this talk is about. It's about probiotics. So we're gonna direct you there next, but before I do that, Let's just make sure we're all intact with what we've got. So necrotizing enterocolitis is most common in term infants. True or false? I feel like you all, you know, you all know your stuff here because mm -hmm. indeed it's false. Necrotizing enterocolitis is more common in the preterm infants and the more preterm they get, the higher the risk they are. All right, question two. Late onset sepsis can be described as how? occurring after 72 hours of life or occurring before 48 hours of life? 
I'm trying to softball you guys some good wins here, right? <laughs> so late onset sepsis is actually the later, meaning it's occurring after 72 hours of life, after we get out of that window where it could possibly be caused by the bacteria encountered during the birthing process. So late onset sepsis, that's our hospital-acquired bacteria, probably are more pathogenic of the two types of sepsis, okay? All right. Are you ready? Well, let's go talk about some of the ways probiotics might be helpful in neonates. So some of the proposed immunologic benefits that sit behind probiotics is that some strains uh, most commonly studied would be lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. And I'm going to stumble over those words probably 20 more times today because they're long. But those ones are the most studied to, and known that they can activate the toll receptor 9 in the epithelial cells of the GI tract. So remember we just talked about the TLR4s, right, and how they are immature and they don't know how to respond to a microbial st uh, stimulation. So they overflourish and they overcause this inflammatory process. TLR9 just stops it where it is. And so some of the strains can help augment that. Many of the strains also produce bacteriocins. And that's just a fancy word for saying a toxic protein that these uh, probiotics produce that directly inhibits the growth of other bacteria that seem to be in its vicinity. Some site-specific benefits of probiotics are that they express chemical signals that can interact with the epithelial cells and tell the epithelial cells that it's time to start accelerating your maturation, it's time to decrease the intestinal permeability, let's, let's do our thing. Some strains can also adhere directly to the intestinal walls. So not only at that point are they just taking up real estate that doesn't allow the more pathogenic flora to bind, but it also triggers the production of mucins and defensins, which are more proteins that sit in that secretory layer and don't allow them to come into contact. Some of the strain-specific benefits noted in the literature are that lactobacillus and bifidobacteria produce short-chain fatty acids. These short-chain fatty acids lower the pH in the colon. So in our GI tract, our commensal bacteria, the flora that we have that are meant to be there, live in a low pH. So taking uh, H2 blockers, PPIs, or other things that could alter the GI, pH alters the flora. The pathogenic bacteria like a more neutral flora, and that's where they, a more neutral pH, and that's where they will actually flourish. In addition, bifidobacterium will displace that enterobacteriaceae, that pathogenic subgroup, from the gut. Bifido and bacterioides are two, that are, uh, two bacteria that sit in the gut, and they compete for human milk oligosaccharides, so HMOs. Uh, bifidobacterium wins because it has a higher affinity than bacterioides does, and by doing so, it allows itself to then flourish, right? It takes up all the food, it gets to grow, and it essentially just chokes out any sort of bacterioides in there. By doing that, it can then start overtaking the real estate that Enterobacteriaceae was trying to hold on to instead, starts producing those bacteriosins, defensins, mucins, everything else to start sort of reclaiming the GI tract per se. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So before we move on, let's just check ourselves here. Proposed benefits of probiotics in neonates include lowering pH of the GI tract, prohibiting growth of the pathogenic bacteria, blocking the inflammatory process in the gut, strengthening the intestinal barriers, or all of the above. You're right. It is all of the above. Well done, team. 
All right, so let's transition over to literature. So literature is robust with regards to using probiotics in neonates. What it isn't robust about is clarity on how to do so. Okay, so I'm going to go through here. I pulled some, some literature that was either a good highlight spot or kind of brought out something some other maybe articles didn't. Just know that this by no way um, encompasses everything that's out there. I'm just going to try to highlight a few for you, okay? But I feel like we can't really talk about literature and probiotic use in the neonates in the literature if you aren't addressing the Cochrane Review out of 2013. And this was really the first published review that came out to evaluate probiotic use in neonates. At that time, they evaluated 16 randomized control trials that had about 2,842 infants in there, less than 37 weeks or 2,500 grams. The trials were including lactobacillus, either alone or in combination with bifidobacterium as their primary probiotic sources. However, the trials were very heterogeneous. They were highly variable in regard to the enrollment criteria, baseline risks of neck in both groups, timing, dose, formulation, and duration of probiotic. Okay, so I, I bring that up because that's going to be the signature thought going through all of this is there is a lot of heterogeneity in the literature about this use. Despite that, they went to look to see safety and efficacy of probiotics in the prevention of neck or sepsis. What they found when they reviewed these trials was a significant decrease in the rates of neck as well as mortality when they used probiotics. They could find a trend towards benefit with sepsis, although they could not make it significant. So when the results of this Cochrane review came out, everybody said, you've got to be kidding me. This is fantastic. This is our silver bullet. We are ready to go. We can protect babies from neck. It's simple. We're going to throw some probiotics on, and we're going to call it good. And then the literature just kind of started to explode with individual studies coming out from here and there, different methods, different whatever, but all using probiotics to see if they could reduce the incidence of neck. On the heels of this Cochrane review came the ProPREMS trial out of 2013, and this was a multi-center study coming from Australia and New Zealand, and they wanted to examine the use of a multi-strain probiotic in infants. So they included just under 1,100 infants, less than 32 weeks gestation, and less than 1,500 grams. So interestingly about this one, we have moved down the prematurity scale, right? So we are now into the more premature infants. 548 of these got randomized to probiotics, 551 to placebo. They used the combination product that was Bifidobacterium infantis, lactis, and then Streptomyces thermophilus. They picked that one, which seems very odd because it was the only one that had been previously studied in preterm infants at the time that they decided to do their study. So it was the only one that really had any safety data on it. So that's where this one comes from. Okay. So the intervention started when the infant was taking trophic feeds, and they defined trophic feeds as one milliliter of volume every four hours. Then they continued giving probiotic or placebo until discharge or corrected term age of 40 weeks. The primary outcome was to evaluate the rates of sepsis before 40 weeks gestation or discharge home, and they defined sepsis as either positive cultures, urine blood, CSF, or clinical sepsis, such as are culture negative sepsis. Babies looking septic, cultures are negative, but CRPs are elevated and they're otherwise acting ill. Okay? Secondary outcomes were rates of neck and mortality. So the interesting thing that came out of this study was that they couldn't prove their primary outcome. They could not prove that it decreased the rates of sepsis. However, they were able to prove that there was a reduced incidence of neck when they used this combination probiotic. 
they decided to subgroup out the most vulnerable patients. They went after the infants less than 28 weeks gestation and less than 1,000 grams to see what they could find in terms of reducing incidence of these. When they did that, they lost um, significance for all all, which they didn't have for two, but they lost it for neck, which the authors postulated would because they just did not have enough of those patients to actually reach any sort of significance based on the numbers alone. So this trial was very nice. We liked to see that it was starting to come into scale with smaller infants, really the ones that are most at risk. So that was really exciting for literature to see. And then the PIPS trial comes out in 2016. So this trial came out of England, and it was a large-scale randomized control trial examining bifidobacterium brevi in preterm infants. So now we've moved from lactobacillus, which was kind of the one known probiotic, to now we're starting to play with combos, and now the literature is starting to move its way towards bifidobacterium because there's suggestions that this is really the one that we want in infant guts. So they chose that one specifically for that reason. So this study included 1,315 infants born between 23 and 30 weeks gestation. So we are now really right in our target of the patients we really want to treat, right? These are our babies that are most at risk. So this is where we want to be. So 654 of these infants got probiotic. 661 were randomized to placebo. Primary outcomes were rates of stage 2 and 3 neck, sepsis, or death. They started the probiotic within 48 hours of birth, whether the baby was NPO or not and continued it until 36 weeks gestation. Are you ready? Are you excited to see the results of this trial? Look, nothing. Out of all of that, they couldn't show a significant reduction in anything for these preterm infants, which was heartbreaking. I just, I heard some of the size. It was heartbreaking to everyone in the literature that thought, this is it, this is the population that needs it. This is where we need to be able to show we can do this and we'll move forward, but nothing. The only good thing that came out of this is that they did not have any episodes of sepsis related to bifidobacterium. So nobody had a bifidosepsis. So yay, right? <laughs> we'll take that silver lining. Okay, so as you can see, it, we're, we're, we're all over the place, right? Maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't help. It significantly reduces neck here, but it, can't, does, it doesn't significantly reduce it here. Is it patient population? Is it the probiotic itself? What is this, right? We're all over the board in the literature. We can't entirely figure out what we're supposed to do. So SVAN, which is the European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition Work Group, came together and said, we got we to get some guidelines in place here because we, nobody knows what to do. They obviously want to help. If there's a way that we can mitigate neck and late onset sepsis, morbidity, mortality, and neonates, we should be doing it, but we just don't know how. So in 2020, they put out a position paper, and they wanted to answer these five main questions here, which we're going to hit on the next slide, so I won't read them off to you. But they included 51 randomized controlled trials, which included 11,200 infants up through 2017. So recommendations on these following slides are coming from randomized controlled trials only. They would go into the literature and if they could find something to support one of these questions, but it was an observational, a cohort, or a case controlled trial, it could back up a recommendation coming from the randomized controlled trial, but it cannot be used to make a recommendation. Okay, so all of this is coming from RCTs. So question one, are probiotics safe for preterm infants? The part of this that killed me was the one-liner that started off this whole answer. And I have to read it to you because it's just that good. And it says, risk of systemic infection, detrimental metabolic effects, excessive immune stimulation, 
antibiotic resistance gene transfer, intestinal gas formation with use makes providing a recommendation difficult. So if that doesn't sum up everything that's going on in the literature, you just, it, there's nothing else, right? So in spite of that, they were able to look through and say, yeah, we can make some recommendations, however. We can say that you should avoid strains that produce D-lactate. It can contribute to a metabolic acidosis, but they're hard to pick up on blood gases. So avoid strains that can do that. Avoid strains that produce plasmids that are capable of transferring antimicrobial resistance genes. Well, I should tell you that in your and my gut flora, we have antimicrobial resistance genes. We're, those are meant to be there so that when we take courses of antibiotics and whatever, we don't completely wipe out our entire microbiome. So we need those. those they're, they're good things. But what we don't want is a horizontal gene transfer into something pathogenic that can then lead to antibiotic resistance. And there was a Turkish study that was actually able to show um, um, an incidence of VRE in a neonatal ICU that they could trace back to probiotic use. So if that's real, that's a little bit scary. Lastly, you need to ensure that your lab can detect a probiotic bacteremia. If you're gonna give a live bacteria to one of the at most risk patient populations, you need to make sure your lab can pick it up, right? Makes sense, okay, I'll buy it. All right, so should probiotics be used? Which strain and which dose? Well, out of these 51 randomized control trials, 17 of them looked only at lactobacillus rhamnosus. Six of them were evaluating this combination. So that's, that's all we've got where these recommendations are coming from. So lactobacillus rhamnosus at a dose of one to six billion colony forming units are conditionally recommended in preterm infants. It doesn't really have a clear effect on sepsis or mortality, but we have obviously seen that it has some benefit in neck. They can also recommend the combination product conditionally for the same reasons, no effect on sepsis or mortality really, but benefit for neck. What they cannot recommend is bifidobacterium brevi, which was the one we saw in our PIPS trial that had no beneficial effect whatsoever. Are combination strains better than single strains? Several of the meta-analyses in these studies showed decreased mortality with combination products, but the problem is that they were not genus, species, or strain specific. One study used a particular combination, another used another, another used another. You can't, you can't extrapolate between that. Nor can you take a bunch of studies that have single strains that have proven effectiveness and mash them all together and create a multi-strain. So they're telling you, do not extrapolate through all of that. Work with what you've got. So they can conditionally recommend a strain or a combination of strains with proven effectiveness rather than trying to go and pick which ones you want. So what dose should be used? Well, doses in the randomized control trials vary widely between the strains and even within the strains. The viable colony forming units are often not what's actually on the label. Uh, these, these bacteria are highly sensitive to heat as well as storage conditions. So from the time that they are manufactured to the time you're ready to administer, a million colonies could have died. So what, what you think you're giving, you may not actually be giving. What you're intending to give, you may not be giving. In addition, viability can be affected by which dissolving vehicle you use, formula versus water versus breast milk. So their recommendation is if you're gonna use it, use it in doses similar to what's reported in the randomized control trials, but make sure you have a way to ensure viability is actually there until the end of the shelf life for the product you're using. What should be the duration of use? Nobody knows. Data does not indicate when we should start it. Data does not indicate for how long we should use it. Obviously, it makes sense. We want to use it when they're at highest risk of neck, so probably somewhere within the four to six week range. 
but keeping a prolonged duration of therapy may actually prevent them from starting to colonize their own flora once they start feeding and taking in mom's milk. So the recommendation is that individual units should determine their duration based on the population they're going to administer to, as well as the risks of neck and other diseases within the units. All right, so now we have some recommendations in place. I'm starting to feel like we have a little bit of guidance. And then here comes April of 2021. And this study, the Prophylactic Probiotic Supplementation for Preterm Infants Study. And the kicker about this is they only included non-randomized control trials. They went into the literature and they found 30 observational cohort case control trials. And they used this for their data because they felt in this patient population, it is so difficult to design a randomized control trial and actually run it through that they felt this was more reflective of what is real life. And what blows my mind is that they have a population of 77,000 neonates in here, right? Our, our RCTs were hitting 30,000, maybe tops. This is at least double. That's a ton of data, right? So these were including 77,000 infants less than 37 weeks gestation. 21,000 of them received probiotics in some form or another versus a control group of 56,000. Those are huge numbers. Those lets you do really good comparisons. And they were looking at the effect of probiotics versus placebo. <clears throat> Excuse me. Primary outcomes, again, were rates of neck, sepsis, mortality. But they decided to go in and subgroup analyze as well. They wanted to see what it looked like for ELBWs because you, it's very difficult to generate a randomized control trial about babies born less than 28 weeks and less than 1,000 grams. There's so many intervening factors going on with there. But you can get the data through this. So they wanted to subgroup analyze for ELBWs as well as single and multi-strain. What they found was significance in every category. Everything showed reduction with the use of probiotics, and those are big numbers and big groups. When they subgrouped out for the ELBWs, so the extreme low birth weight babies, our babies less than 1,000 grams, they lost significance for sepsis and mortality reductions. They were able to maintain it, however, with neck. Now, the authors pointed out that they had two outlier studies that sat in here. One by Kane and colleagues had a significant patient population being treated with endomethacin at the time for PDAs. Endomethacin, as we know, alters the mesenteric flow into the gut, right? It can cause ischemia. That in itself can cause neck. In addition, Escobaro had about 50% of their population diagnosed with bronchopulmonary dysplasia, so a disease of the premature lungs, and they were on steroids the entire time. So now I've added another factor, right? So once they pulled those out of post hoc analysis, they were actually able to regain significance for reduction in the rates of sepsis along with neck. When they went and subgroup analyzed for probiotic strain, I, I don't really know how to make heads or tails of why one worked better than another, but the multi-strain showed a significant decrease in the incidence of neck. Single strain showed a significant decrease in the incidences of sepsis, and both had decreased incidence on mortality. So circling back, literature summary. Probiotics decrease the rate of neck in preterm neonates. I think we can all say with pretty good confidence that yes, that, that happens. The impact of probiotics on prevention of sepsis is less clear. Probiotics may decrease mortality rates. Depends upon how much more data we can get that sort of trends that way. The only bummer about all of this is that there's no difference in long-term outcomes on patients that are treated with probiotics. So at two years of age, when we're looking at bronchopulmonary dysplasia, neurodevelopmental delay, intraventricular hemorrhages, all diseases of preterm newborns, 
for those who received probiotics versus those that didn't, it didn't have a positive impact on the change. So that was kind of a bummer. So <clears throat> given the information I've presented to you, would you feel comfortable using probiotics in preterm neonates? That's fair. That's a totally fair argument, right? What I gave you in the literature is not crystal clear at all. So why aren't probiotics common practice in the NICU? Because they aren't still. They still remain very controversial. Well, if we look a little bit closer at the literature, what we've got for study designs are a lot of single-center designs. We've got a lot of observational cohorts. Those don't tend to carry the same weight as the randomized control trials, right? There's a very heterogeneous population between each center. Each center has different rates of what they're colonized with and what it might be. That could, in turn, just alone affect neck. ELBWs, those are our highest risk population, but those are the babies that we have the least amount of data on. We're still lacking data on side effects of probiotics and safety concerns. Nobody's really addressing those in the literature. Things we don't know. When are we supposed to start probiotics still? Nobody still really knows. How long are we supposed to go? Nobody knows. Single strain versus multi-strain? Nobody knows. Dose? Nobody knows. So which strain is the right strain? Currently, uh, everybody's basket is going for bifidobacterium. So we're all throwing our eggs in the bifidobacterium basket right now because that is proposed to be the most beneficial. It looks like it's heavily populated in term infants that are being fed breast milk. And it is not there in infants that have been kind of wiped out through a course of antibiotics or have recently had neck or sepsis. So knowing that bifidobacterium is theoretically the best one now, which bifidobacterium? We know it's not Bifidobacterium brevi, right? The PIPS trial said no. But there are seven other strains of Bifidobacterium currently in, anti or in probiotics on the market right now. So which one is the one we pick, right? Nobody knows. Lactobacillus has the largest body of evidence for use because it's the oldest. However, if you remember back to the SVAN guidelines, they said don't use anything that can produce D-lactate. Well, shoot, Lactobacillus acidophilus produces D-lactate. It is one of the main lactobacillus strains that are in almost all probiotics. So that's unfortunate. We might need a little more studying for that. What about combination products? Theoretically, it makes sense, right? The more, the more that you have, the more diverse flora you have, the more they can interact, work synergistically with each other, kind of be a good gut. There's, the, there's just this idea now about doing a prebiotic with a probiotic where this prebiotic, which is probiotic food, gets in there and kind of helps the probiotic populate, do it a little bit more rapidly and a little bit more successfully. But, but now you've just opened an entire another can of worms about which prebiotic, which one are we supposed to use, and with which probiotic. So again, we don't necessarily know. What about cross-contamination concerns? And this was big. In the PIPS trial, 37% of the infants that were in the control arm were colonized with Bifidobacterium brevi by two weeks of age. So they hadn't been given the probiotic, but they still had the probiotic. So that's a big deal, right? We're giving a live bacteria to a high-risk patient with a big risk of cross-contamination. In addition, Caviliocho had three cases of a lactobacillus bacteremia in preterm infants in which only one of them was receiving probiotic. They were all three bedded in the same room. All three of them had central lines. Only one was getting the probiotic. All three ended up septic from it. So it's not good, like that's a real concern. That's something that we have to address. In addition, there's just the straight up bacteremia concerns. The idea that you're giving a live bacteria to a high risk patient. 
The reports of probiotic-induced bacteremia are pretty rare. Danny and colleagues had a report on some cases of sepsis from probiotic. Chang et al. also did the same thing. But why is it so rare? I could go to the literature and I could find 10 articles on probiotic use in neck being, being beneficial for every one that I can find about a sepsis. But why is that? Is it because people just aren't reporting it? Or is it because the lab can't even detect it? Remember we talked back about ensuring your lab can pick up on this bacteremia? Not all labs are equipped to do that. Could it be that a lot of our culture negative sepsises are actually a probiotic or a flora-induced sepsis that we don't know about? Those are questions that we don't really have answered yet. And lastly, what comes back to the heart of all pharmacists is the fact that nobody really knows what's in this. It is not FDA regulated. It is considered a nutritional supplement and therefore gets to bypass all of the good manufacturing standards that we should get out of every other drug. And I'd say if there was one massive hang-up to why we wouldn't do it, it probably falls here. And it's because you just don't know what you're getting. The colony-forming strains are all over the board. In 2016, Lewis and his colleagues studied 16 different bifidobacterium products and found that only one had what was stated on the label. Just one. And Drago and his colleagues in 2010 went and looked at 13 probiotic products, and only 13% of what was on the labels actually matched what was in the product. He was finding dead particles of other bacteria that were not meant to be there. He they were finding probiotics that were not on the label that were in there. They were finding stuff that was labeled that was not in there. It was completely all over the board. Manufacturers are completely free when they do this to change colony forming units within the same lot, within the same batch, under the same brand name at any time without having to notify anyone. And that's terrifying. Summary of some of our concerns. Which strain is the right strain? Is there a risk in giving this to a high-risk infant? Product integrity is not guaranteed at all and we are still waiting on guidance for what, when, how to use. So now, given the information, would you feel comfortable using probiotics in preterm neonates? It's perfect. Actually, if I tell you that that reflects my change from day to day on how I stand on this, it couldn't be more accurate because the benefits are clearly there, right? And we know that we have diseases that have high morbidity, high mortality, and finding something that could help is obviously what we would all want to do. But there's some scary stuff out there that we don't know. And when you're giving it to the patient population that's highest at risk, that's, that's also a little terrifying. So I'm just going to close out. <clears throat> the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with an official statement on this just actually a month, month and a half ago. And so their, their stance as of right now is that evidence does not support routine universal administration of probiotics, and especially not in the ELBWs. Centers choosing to administer should discuss the risks and benefits with parents, make sure they're on board. Centers using the probiotics should have surveillance in place to, access, to <clears throat> assess impact on cross-contamination, which could then be altering flora, the normal, normal flora of the unit. And the clinicians and family have to be aware of the lack of regulatory standards in the products. And then from there, decisions can be made. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.